Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Rhett Larson. Rhett has had an interesting path coming from the United States over to building a company called Just Play over in China. He's had the privilege of working with Velocity Sports, uh, Athletes Performance, and now Exos. And that whole run has brought him to amazingly high-level athletes here in the States and has brought him behind the curtain working with the Chinese system. So we first we start out and we talk about his professional voyage coming from Richmond, Virginia, literally across the street from the university, and heading all the way over to China. You know, we talk about some, some of his work that he's done with the defending World Cup volleyball champions, uh, which is really cool. You know, the, his, the opportunity to work with a world champion is, is absolutely fascinating. And the whole deal that he has with the volleyball team now prepping for Rio is really, really super cool. And then we get into talking about his time with the Chinese divers who are obviously immensely successful on the Olympic and world stage. And he talks about how dealing with the Chinese athletic system and the sport system has really altered his thoughts on early specialization because that's what they do in China. And these individual sports where they're very skill-oriented, they have a very high level of success at he then gets into his latest project, which is Just Play, and it's really neat. Um, the whole thing, I think, is super cool, and, and their vision and what they're doing, um, let alone the facilities they're building, I think it's just really, really awesome. And then he talks about a really cool story about positive reinforcement and how that affected his drive to be a coach and how it impacts the athletes um, that he handles every day. You know, and looking at it, going to China, there's not a lot of uh, people in the system that are, you know, all sunshine and rainbows. It's just kind of like, however it is, this is how it is. And, and Rhett gets into talking about how picking people up, especially in their system, leads to some really significant improvements. Guys, this is an awesome talk. Rhett is, beyond everything else, one of the best people there is in performance. So I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Rhett, thanks for being with us today, man. Hey, my pleasure, of course. And, uh, an interesting story and an interesting topic because we're going to be able to look behind the curtain of what goes on over in China. So let's first talk about how you got over there. What was your voyage to China? Yeah, um, well, I'm... I kind of am in a special situation. Well, I know it was four years ago when I first went over. And that is that I'd been training elite and Olympic athletes in the United States for a you know, handful of years. And I'd been in the business long enough. Um, and I had made enough connections with uh, other people in the industry that when athletes performance, now Exos, when they won a bid to work with the Chinese Olympic teams, for, to prepare them for the London Olympics, um, I had a couple of really good friends there that, that looked for me to come over and lead a team. And what they liked about me is that not only did I have a, the experience they wanted, but you know, the Chinese had made uh, no uncertainty about the fact that they wanted a male 
you know, to be over there in charge of things because it's a super misogynistic society still. It's also a society that really respects maturity. So the fact that I was pushing 40 years old really helped. Um, and then when, you lo when you're looking for someone with experience training elite athletes as well as being 40 as well as not having a wife and kids who could just pick up and move to China for a year, there's not that many folks out there. So I kind of got lucky that uh, I, I kind of checked a bunch of the demographic boxes that the Chinese Olympic Committee was working for, uh, was looking for, and it, it also so happened that I'd been, um, I was with uh, Velocity Sports Performance for 12 years, and I'd kind of gotten to a point in that company that I think I'd just gotten complacent, um, and I needed an adventure. Living in Southern California, you know, one of these lives where it's just, all you know, you wake up every day and it smells like suntan lotion, and the beach is there. It leads a cushy life, and I don't know that that made me a very, a very good person. So <laughs> I kind of relished at the opportunity to go over and uh, get a little bit more stimulus over in China and take the plunge for what I thought was just going to be one year working with the athletes for London, but then what turned into well now four years plus. So fast forward now to 2016 headed into Rio, one of the teams that you're responsible for is the defending world champion volleyball squad. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that journey, you know, coming back over and, and winning a, you know, kind of a minor championship. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny that I'm like 99% of your listeners is going to think, ah, World Cup, women's volleyball. That's kind of, that's nice. It must be nice for them, but China wins so much stuff. But that's not the case, is that it's true China wins a lot of stuff. And before the London Olympics, uh, my team and I were fortunate to, enough to work with a bunch of what China calls their gold medal factories. And China, you know, back in the 80s when they decided to start caring about the Olympics, they went after it really, really strategically, where they decided they would pour all of their money and resources into just individual sports where they could potentially, if you, you know, they could pour money into things like gymnastics or diving. And if it does well, you get like eight, 10, 12 gold medals out of a team. Whereas if you pour all your money into the men's basketball program, if everything goes perfectly well, you get one gold medal out of it. Well, China doesn't want one medal when they can pour the same amount of money into a smaller team or maybe a team that the, a sport that the West doesn't care about or women instead of men that in the rest of the world aren't getting as much money then it's a numbers game. China just wants to win gold medals. So they, uh, you know, it was really interesting to see how much they pay attention to the individual sports at the expense of team sports, which frankly, culturally in China, don't really work well anyway. You know, this one-child policy and, um, you know, going into sports schools when you're a little kid, it drives a lot of that teamwork passion out of you, that passion for sport that is more necessary in a team sport than it is in just a rote muscle memory. Well, not muscle, it's a bad term, but rote, like technical perfection kind of sport like gymnastics or diving. Well, now, as opposed to those sports that we worked with in London and, and a little bit since, um, I've gotten to start working with the women's volleyball team, which is in China's history, the only team sport that they've had any success in. They won a gold medal in the 80s, and they haven't won anything in any team sport, men or women, in 12 years until we won the World Cup. 
Um, and so for that reason, China has sunk a bunch of resources. There's a bunch of stress and pressure on the Chinese women's volleyball team to be China's golden team, their team that can finally out, you know, beat the Western, the Western countries in the sports they profess to love the most. That's pretty amazing. And it's, uh, it's a model where they really look at the West with that team too, isn't it? Absolutely. They, you know, we get really, you know, it's, it's also a unique kind of awesome, perfect storm of greatness on this volleyball team. Because what I haven't mentioned yet is the head coach of that team was actually the head coach of the women's team for the USA going into the London Olympics. So our head coach is a national icon in China, even before she just won the World Cup. She was their superstar MVP of the uh, 84 Olympics, I think. And she, yeah, 84 Olympics. And she um, just complete rock star. Uh, she then became a, a great coach who went and took the USA in London to a surprise silver medal, then comes back to China as China's great hope for taking their team that did nothing in London and trying to get them back to greatness. We were underdogs for a while, and then all of a sudden we got really lucky in uh, Japan uh, last fall to upset a couple of really great teams and eke out a win at the World Cup. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that the USA beat us up in that World Cup, but we got lucky and we beat a couple of teams that the USA ended up losing to. So we kind of snatched that one out from under their, uh, their grasp, uh, luckily enough, and got a quick qualifier to the Olympics. And so now we're in a, a good position. Um, but, you know, we also don't like to have that target on our backs. I think China plays best as an underdog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, too, because most people do think when they think of China, they think automatically it's like ping pong. They think yeah. diving. They think gymnastics. Well, you've had the luck to and the privilege of working with one of them. So right. let's talk a little bit about your time with the divers and how that yeah. whole process works. Yeah, yeah. And, and let me say right off the bat that uh, I, I want to give credit where credit is due. I was part of a team over there. When I say I worked with diving, I, I was one of, a, of like three or four coaches that got to work with the diving team while we were there. Um, Athletes Performance, now Exos, does a great job of making sure everyone's really fully integrated. All coaches are helping each other out. So that caveat aside, um, you know, kind of one of the great things about China diving, um, as well as almost all of those individual sports, uh, that every coach, I'm almost sure every coach that goes to China, probably one of their biggest aha um, re uh, revelations over there is that technical training, enormous volumes of technical training works. That the Chinese have succeeded in these sports despite having strength and conditioning practices that would make your middle school PE teacher's eyes roll. Like it is painful to watch and surprising to watch athletes at the highest level in China, you know, sitting around a, you know, a Nautilus machine that could have been lifted from a Ramada Inn and doing 30 seconds of everyone the same weight on 17 different exercises while they just churn through. And these are gold medalist badminton, gold medalist ping pong, that have just never been taught how to how to do weightlifting like we, we take completely for granted here in the United States. Now, note that two buildings over is one of probably 
the best Olympic weightlifting program on planet Earth in the Chinese Olympic lifters who have just decided to never tell any of those amazing secrets for developing power and strength to any other sport. Because if you were to watch all the other Chinese sports do Olympic lifts, it's like they just watched a YouTube video of it and they're just trying their best to mimic it when two four gold medalists are two buildings over. But um, so what we quickly learned to kind of put a cap on a, a long answer is that the Chinese, especially with these individual sports, have succeeded um, because they are, have been doing the same thing for so long um, that these Chinese sports schools that they've grown up in, when it comes to just getting 10,000 hours of a skill to be incredible at it, it's hard to beat that if you can keep them healthy. Um, and, you know, our PTs and strength coaches would get together and say, you know, I came over here thinking, all right, I'm going to get these girls deadlifting for the first time. They're going to get super strong. I'm going to increase their vertical jumps. And you almost have to take a backseat and say, hey, maybe my primary objective is not to make the, the diving team that has already won 85% of the medals they've ever tried to get in the sport. Like maybe I don't try to take them from 85% to 95 or 100%, but let's just keep them able. Let's not try to get their vertical jump, I should say. Let's not try to get their vertical jump higher. Let's just try to keep them able to withstand that many dives every day of practice that they're doing 40% more dives than the rest of the teams on the planet. And they're doing it an you know, six days a week and they've done it all their lives. I got to make a body that can withstand that kind of torture. Yeah. So. And it's, uh, the torture, not just from, you know, into yeah. the water, but the torture of walking up to the high dive. Oh yeah. Yeah. You remember that story we talked yeah. about, right? Yeah, when we first went to uh, when we first went to do our initial um, testing on that, of course we put them through like an FMS, and uh, after the movement screen, uh, we kept seeing a ton of knee pain. And we're like, "What the hell's going on? Why is diving have knee pain? They jump off the springiest thing in the world. Even their dry land training is done on super foamy mats and stuff like that. It's it's trampolines. Like how are knees hurting? Like they get to land head first." It shouldn't be anything until you go to practice and you see that they got to climb up a 75 rung ladder, uh, you know, a hundred times a day. They're climbing on a ladder to the top of the Empire State Building every day. No wonder. I'm surprised that all their knees haven't exploded by now. So as a strength coach, I have to not worry about making them jump a centimeter higher off of the 10 meter platform but i got to worry more about making them better at climbing a ladder so their knees don't swell up after a day of diving yeah and that's that's crazy because you look at this and it's because of the early specialization they're very successful but because right. of the early specialization they have these dramatic overuse injuries right and because they don't know well they don't share information very well with each other they're not able to do the performance training at a young age. So now where you could be specializing to a greater extent, you're now in a, in a role where you're really protective and trying to build resiliency that unfortunately, because they didn't share this when they were 12, 13, 14, yep. you have to you, catch up on. Okay, you hit the nail on the head on that. Like it is, you know, so much of my brain has been rewired towards fortification 
and building that in athletes and away from just pure performance training. And that's, you know, that's to be expected once you get into higher and elite athletes, but I'm doing it at a much like with the, with the volleyball team now and with diving, you know, it was one of the first things we do is take their 15 minute warmups and try to turn them into 45 minute movement preparation sessions that I try to bake as much fun fortification, like stimulating, um, novel, you know, like movement puzzles, things like that, that I can put on these athletes so that I can start putting a suit of armor on them like right away. And I know that I'm probably the only person being interviewed for a strength and conditioning podcast this month who's going to say that early specialization works. (laughs) (laughs) I am going to ruffle so many feathers. Um, but, but it's true that if you care about these technical sports, that if I do my job correctly and I can get these athletes when they're seven, eight, ten years old, and I can teach them how to be more robust, uh, or I can make them more robust by teaching them things that will fortify their body, and I can do it in a fun and stimulating environment and maybe avoid some of the burnout that makes these athletes hate diving potentially by the time they're gold medalists. Um, it is tough to beat a diver that's been doing these dives that often since they were a little kid. Not only physically, but the mental toughness of doing something so for so long that it no longer has the emotional impact that it does for Western divers. You know, I guarantee our diver, the Chinese divers, get up on a 10-meter board you know, with the gold medal on the line and their heart rate's sitting at like 85 beats a minute. And they're just thinking about just doing this dive like they've done a billion times with competition, way worse than they ever get at the Olympics and nailing it. And it's, in, and that's, that's robotic. And the very famously before the London Olympics, uh, Tom Daly, who's the UK's hope, great white hope for diving. He said, it is really hard to beat his Chinese rival, Chu Bo. It's really hard to beat Chu Bo. He's a robot. I mean, he's gotten more perfect tens than anyone ever has. He's just a diving robot. He doesn't have interests outside of blah, 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 outside of diving. Well, Chu Bo would say, yeah, of course I'm a robot. Like, like I used to love diving, but now it's just my job. Right. And, and honestly, we talk a lot about making athletes technically better, that we want to get them to a place of unconscious competence where they do exactly the right movement patterns without having to think about it, without it being volitional. Well, that's, that's, that's a robot. A robot is unconsciously competent. And so you get a degree of technique, perfection, and mental toughness with early specialization that it is hard to catch up to in technical sports um, if you're not doing it. And I know that's unpopular, <laughs> but, oh. but we're watching it. And, it's, and now that that they're bringing over Western strength coaches and more importantly, like physios and physical therapists, um, that can keep those athletes healthy, um, and bring over kind of a more positive, uh, you know, at least our group is committed to being extremely positive and making athletes love the experience that they're with, that they're with when they're with, um, us foreign coaches. And China could be tough to beat because you're not going to be able to, you in the United States, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to mimic the hours without getting busted for child labor <laughs> violations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they got to go to school, right? 
Yeah, yeah, the U.S. people do. I have, in years, in four years of working with Olympic athletes that are all between, you know, 12 and 20-something, I have had dozens of 12 to 18-year-olds. I have never had one of them tell me they had to miss a training session for school. Whoa. Yeah, most of them just are going to school two mornings a week. Some of them, by the way, some of them are brilliant and can and go to college, but the lion's share of them are, you know, they're in sports schools. They're, their classes are about layups and, and free throws. That's pretty neat. You know, and I think that what's, I mean, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people that are like, oh, the specialization. And it's, you know, because you see all the posts on social media all the time about yeah. how, oh, well, this team has so many multi-sport athletes from high school and blah, blah, right. blah. But you almost look at it like the burnout type idea that you could almost say like broke them down mentally right. as what has made like them walking up on the board. All right, it's winning time. It's time to win the gold medal. Oh, ho-hum. Yeah. Here I go. A complete lack of anxiety is yeah. a pretty potent tool oh. in, in an elite athlete's toolbox. Um, you – you you know in a team sport you take that to a team sport and a complete lack of anxiety is also a complete apathy which is never that's somebody that can't be roused by a halftime speech also that's somebody who can't fire their team up to work together better as a unit and this is why what is great for a couple of sports is not led to any success in China in things like basketball and uh, and soccer which are China's two favorite sports it's ironic to have a that to have a country that loves I've watched more NBA games in China than I ever did when I lived in the United States that they love sports that they're just garbage at. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've had a couple of good women's soccer teams yeah. that played for world cup finals, but yeah, yeah, it's, it is. I mean, if when you're that broken down or beaten down or I don't know what other word I would use, it would be very hard in a team setting because eventually somebody's got to jump up and be like, yo, let's go. Right. Um, but when the right. emotion's been sucked out of you, yeah, and I mean, it's time to go freaking hit a perfect 10 to win a gold medal. You're relaxed. Yeah. You're just going to smoke exactly. it. Just go, you know, just clock in, do my job, clock out. But, you know, the China, it's easier for China to, to get, well, I don't know if it's easier, but China is willing now to make changes. Like China's learning from the West in a way that I don't know that the West is learning from China. I mean, if you are a soccer coach in Europe or, you know, even to some extent in the United States and you want to make a ton of money in the next five years, go get a job in China because China is going to, is ready to pour money into make our soccer teams more like European soccer teams. Put us in the next World Cup for soccer. Put us on the world stage for basketball because they're determined to change that and they're hiring Western. I mean, you know, every basketball coach for the national team is foreign. They're, they know what they lack, you know, and knowing what your weaknesses are is, is also pretty important. Oh, yeah. And it, it's going to bring in a new culture and new ideas and new views that are going to carry into that. But talking about that burnout and keeping things fun, you're, you're in a new interesting uh, program as well. Oh, yeah, right. With um, the company that I work for now is Just Play. And they, you know, 
one of the reasons that I joined and kind of helped to start this company um, is that I'm pretty committed to the idea of I guess, compliance, that maybe instead, I think we spend a lot of time debating the X's and O's of a program and you know whether or not we need to do a ton of um, readiness profiling, whether or not we need to do a lot of jump testing or maybe velocity-based training is the best or what are your favorite exercises when, and there's a lot of lip service paid to this, but maybe not a lot of people are concentrating on maybe the most important thing, which is let's develop a program that people really, really love doing and really get behind. Not necessarily, and, and this is an abstract concept to communist China where no one, if you have a good strength program, it could be utter torture. If it works, we're doing it. Um, but I want to find a happy medium there. I think that we can design programming that is also based on giving the athletes enough autonomy, which they haven't had in the past, um, to make them buy into a program and really, really get more benefit out of this program because they fully understand how it's helping them and they know it's designed with their best interests at heart. I mean, we've, and this is sometimes hard for me to push through head coaches, but we will let athletes make decisions on things that previously they never could. If an athlete is having a bad day, they're allowed to come to me and I give them a pass. Um, if, you know, if athletes after a month of training, if an athlete says, and I will proactively go to the athletes and give them a little questionnaire and say, Hey, out of all the exercises we're doing, which is, you know, I'll pick my 14 favorite exercises that I'll, that, that they're absolutely going to do every week. I'll say, out of my 14 favorites, which one of these, are there any of these that you just hate, that you dread every day that we have to do Turkish get-ups because it just doesn't feel good, you don't think it really works, blah, blah, blah. And if they say, yeah, I can't stand Turkish get-ups, then I'll take out Turkish get-ups. I want them, it's more important to me that they feel that we are a team working together, that of course I'm the boss of the weight room and there's a lot of things that they're going to do regardless. But if there's something that someone really doesn't like, I'm more interested in developing a stronger bond with that person by giving them one of the 20 alternatives to a Turkish getup that can do similar things than I am about forcing something they hate down their throat and making them, making them do it. But I'll do that even daily. I'll even tell the girls if we're going to do like a rep scheme that is you know, theoretically, I'd want to be a little bit of ascending reps than descending. I'll give maybe the option to say, oh, you can do it descending, ascending. Whatever you, whatever you want to do that day. But, you know, here's what the, the rep schemes will look like. Do whatever you like. Um, and so it's that kind of buy-in that I like. It's, it's taking – I spend a lot of my day thinking about how I can take an exercise that the girls, you know, that the girls are now sleepwalking through or maybe they don't, under, maybe they don't enjoy and trying to find ways to make it stimulating and interesting and make them like it. That's interesting, especially for that culture where they're so used to being like, you are at point A at this time right. for this long, and you are going to do this many of that and the other thing. Right. If, if, I can, if I can mobilize, if I can like warm a hip up by having them do hula hoop relays, I'm going to do that instead of just the same hip exercise I've been doing for a long time. If I, if I can do agility through throwing a Frisbee around, I'm going to do that instead of um, the same ladder drills that have been done since the whatever beginning of strength and conditioning. If, um, you know, there's no shortage of ways, you know, that, that we can create kind of 
fun, but maybe self-policing exercises that, you know, instead of traditional balance exercises, we throw balance beams all over the place. We make the girls do gymnastics and silly things that are also serving a purpose. Just, not just, just because they're silly, but because I want to, I want to sneak in as much kind of movement. I've said this before, but like movement puzzles in as I can that allow their bodies to figure out new ways to move. And, and for a lot of them who have these little aches and pains, motion is lotion that just getting them moving in new patterns and making them have to giggle while they figure out how to do something is wonderful. Oh, I bet. And it's with just play. It doesn't just stay at them. It, this is now expanding to kids right. and all over the place. And that's where, that's where we want to go ultimately with this. Um, you know, I'll, all right, I can I tell a quick story. So sure, sure. when I, when I was a little kid living, living in Richmond, uh, go spiders. Um, I, I grew up, I grew up uh, as a cross country runner and I was this tall, which is like six, two. And I weighed one thirty five. I was thin when I ran in college, my college cross country coach told me that he could take my pulse just by looking at my rib cage. Cause you could see my heart beating through it. Cause that's so little body fat. Anyway, I'm like a teeny kid. I'm a teeny kid. And the summer between middle school and high school, um, the high school cross country coach says, Rhett, I'm super excited about you coming onto the team. I really need you to bulk up a little bit. You need to start eating Joe Weider's weight gainer powder and here are the keys to the varsity weight room. So I am a maniac in the weight room that, that summer. I am lifting every day, you know, unguided, but I'm just walking around the Nautilus machine, just doing sets and sets of curls and staring at myself in the mirror. And at the end of that summer of getting diesel, I, I, I went from like 135 to like 138. <laughs> like I gained like three pounds of muscle. But, but I strode into my community pool where I used to swim, where I used to do swim team. And I didn't do swim team that summer because I was so committed to getting swole. And I, I rolled in and from across the pool, I see Coach Tamra. Now, Coach Tamra was that like college kid from the University of Virginia who came back every summer to just coach the swim team. She was gorgeous, 20 years old, like totally accelerated my puberty. Just anyway, she was awesome. <laughs> and I see her from across the pool. And she walks towards me and we get, you know, like 10 feet from each other. And she goes, oh, my God, Red, you are so much bigger now. Have you been lifting weights? And that's not like kind of what she said. Jay, that's not that's exactly what she said. (laughs) It's awesome. With all the pauses, the exact same. I remember everything about that moment. I remember what she was wearing. I remember what I was wearing. I remember what song was playing on the speakers in the pool, which was they she blinded me with science. Like I remember everything about it because it was incredibly impactful that a coach that I respected and I cared about acknowledged said acknowledged my hard work and said exactly the right thing to me at the exact right time. You could argue that that compliment that she gave me might be the reason that I got into strength and conditioning, that, that telling a kid who needs to hear it that, that what they're doing is working or that, that they're good enough to do this, that they can get better, is incredibly impactful. And for that reason, as much as I love training elite athletes, you know, I've always had this passion for working with younger athletes because that it's those kind of those Disney moments, those Disney movie moments that 
that are the ones that I think I'll remember forever. I mean, the World Cup was pretty freaking cool, but <laughs> um, but uh, but no, like I, I mean, that's the reason I stayed at Velocity Sports Performance for twelve years is because uh, you get addicted to making that kind of an influence on kids that go on to not only become you know stronger, faster, and maybe make a varsity team, but become better human beings. And I think you know you miss an opportunity as a coach, if you're not, especially a coach of young athletes, if you're not also keeping an eye to teaching some really essential virtues that make athletes better people. And I've seen, you know, I've, I've been blessed to work with a bunch of outstanding youth coaches and I pick up so many incredible tips and tricks for how to keep kids from you know, being forced into a situation where they're going to lie to you because they feel so much peer pressure to, you know, have come in not last in an exercise there's a lot of ways that really great youth coaches, you know, applaud this effort and not, you know, and not achievement. And, uh, you know, the guys doing it right are, are really fun to watch. And that's been inspiring to me. And that's kind of my big plan is that I would love to be someone that takes my methods of training the elite athletes in China and uses that power that I'm, that I could kind of have over there to maybe start influencing the way that the Chinese train young athletes and, young kids in general, that if we can kind of make these sports schools a little bit better place to grow up, that could be, that could be pretty impactful as well. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. And just to have a moment like that with one of those kids over there, I mean, yeah, they, their face might melt. I mean, like he said something nice. Yeah. You know, yeah. like doesn't happen all the time. Mm-mm. And uh, even more so there than here. I mean, right. I mean, because we go over there and when I hire coaches to come over to China, um, one of the things I say is that we don't, we could very easily be the most positive coach they've ever had. They don't associate coaches with being, uh, he was a really positive or negative coach. They just know he was a successful coach or a not successful right. coach that they either liked or disliked. But there's no expectation that a coach of a team in China needs to be nice or caring or positive. Um, their super famous tennis star, Li Na, who's actually won two, Li Na is, their, is the best tennis player of all time in China. She's won two um, Grand Slams. And Li Na wrote an autobiography where she, she said, in nine years of being a junior tennis player in China, I never heard one word of encouragement from my coach or her mother for that reason. I was always told that I was too slow, too fat, too ugly, too weak to ever be a good tennis player. It wasn't until she got a Western coach, she got a German coach who, who was like, she's like, I never knew how much more, how much better I could play when I actually had the confidence of someone telling me that I was good. Well, I want to be that coach. I want the coaches under me to be those coaches. And we take that role really seriously. That's fantastic. And that, you know, spending a month over there, I could see how, like, when you give the time to the kids and you are investing in them, and it's more than just, you know, they, right. it, it, they quick. I mean, they click, and they get going quick, and it was, uh, it was a real eye-opening experience for me, and it's, uh, it's really awesome to hear that, that that's the direction you guys are going. Yeah, you know, there are no shortage of stories. I, I, I've told you, I think, before that we had – you know, on the gymnastics team, which is filled with young, adorable, hardworking um, girls and boys. And on that gymnastics team, there are girls on that team that have been away from their parents so long. Because, of course, as an 
if you can just do the splits as a two-year-old and can do a great tumble, you might be taken into a sports school because they peak so early as, to be a great gymnast. That those girls have been away from their parents for so long that when they call them on weekends, they have trouble understanding their mom and dad's accents. That they have been in the sports school system or taken to Beijing to be in the Olympic training program. And, and I know from like Western ears, that sounds horrible. It sounds like child torture, but you also have to realize that they're coming from a place where they don't know any better that, and they're also going from one, you know, from single child families where they have no brothers and sisters to going into kind of a family like unit. One of the things that China does a great job is of is putting these girls on teams and making them into a family. They all call each other big sister, little sister, big brother, little brother on teams. They, um, there's, you know, there's research that shows that, that young athletes, you know, that like the second at the second child in any family is the most likely to, you know, to be great in sports because, you know, being that middle child, especially with a bunch of older brothers and sisters, it, you have to compete against them. And that's to an extent traumatic. And, you know, there's a body of research that talent breeds trauma. And so when you're a young athlete, you don't have in China, you don't have a brother or sister, but when you get thrown onto a sports team with kids two and three years older than you that are beating you in your sport every day, that can be the trauma that turns, you know, that turns you into a superstar. Yeah. That's really, I mean, it is crazy to people because they don't understand, well, A, the in-depth of the specialization and B, how the culture affects all of it. Um, But it's really neat that they do have that sociological instinct to just become a family. They look at, and and at the Olympic level, they look out for each other. I mean, the, it's, Imagine the impact. I mean, imagine if you were, if you just wanted to be like a filmmaker. Imagine if you got to, as a 18-year-old, go and watch Steven Spielberg make two movies. Just sit with him every single day. That would be more valuable to you than 30 years of film school. Well, these young athletes, these junior, the junior diving team gets to spend every, almost every waking hour with Wu Mingxia and and who has won six gold medals, five gold medals in three different Olympics um, with Chubo who can't stop winning gold medals in world championships. And so they get to mimic all of the training, all the training they're doing, but also the way they eat, the way they sleep, the discipline, everything about that. And they're getting to see that when they're six years old and live among it. It's hard to beat that kind of a mentorship that's happening at all levels of of that process. Um, That's awesome though. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you think of like, gosh, I, I, I don't want to say the cruelty, but when you think of the differences of like the coaching philosophies, and like I said, they don't have to be mean, uh, they don't have to be nice as a technical coach in China. They don't know any better. Um, they, that's the way they were raised. They don't associate sports necessarily with all the fun that we associate it with. And for that reason, you don't see many Chinese people that are like, Oh, I would give anything to be, blank Chinese athlete because that's not associated with being an amazing life as it is in the United States. Oh my God, you get to play basketball for a living. I'd give anything to be LeBron James. No, they know that it is a hard road as well. And the Chinese athletes that are getting their childhood a little bit taken away from them and are working crazy around the clock are suffering all kinds of, you know, have the bodies of broken 50 year olds when they're 14 
they also know that the alternative for a Chinese kid growing up, you know, in a village in China isn't awesome. And that it might stink that, you know, coaches in China will hit athletes. A male coach will lay out a, a, chi- a female girl. Now, fortunately, that stuff is kind of going away. But that's, I've, I've seen that with my eyes. That you have to realize that's just the way all of them were brought up. They don't know that that's bad. And, and to some extent, it's a bit, I feel like it might be not drastically far away from if I were to just plot myself in a 1930s football practice in the middle of Oklahoma, yeah. like a high school football practice. I'm sure there's a coach slapping a kid in the ear hole and like making him eat a salt tab while he runs them, you know, in 110 degree heat until he drops. We probably thought, think nothing of that back in the day. Well, China is in a state of catching up in a lot of different ways. And they're in an accelerated state of it right now, their economy, everything, but also the way that they, they treat athletes, the way that they um, train athletes. And to their credit, they're trying, they're, they're hiring people like us to, to come over and help. But it can be traumatic for coaches coming over and seeing that the first time. And I'm always having to kind of give these stories of, of just know that it's not as malicious as you might think it is. It's just, they don't know any better. And, and we're here to passively show them there's a better way, you know, to catch more bees with honey. Oh, no doubt. And the fact that you guys are there picking the kids up, making things more enjoyable, giving them sort of, I don't know if the word is a childish outlet, Mm -hmm. but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, with something that is also going to directly affect how well they can perform, it's, it's huge. And I, yeah. And I, I can't say that enough about how impressive that is. And I, I hope people understand like how big time the things you guys are doing over there, man, because it's, uh, it's really awesome. Well, you know, and I have to thank you. I mean, I have to thank you and all of the other resources that we're able to get in China, you know, China blocks Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all these wonderful coaching, all these wonderful things that help us coach. But, um, and we can get VPNs that jump the firewall, but you're certainly, you know, in China, we find ourselves in a little bit of uh, a bubble. And I, I don't know how many pages of notes I've taken from conversations with you now that you have your podcast with all the other great strength and conditioning podcasts out there. It's, Oh, you know, it enables me to stay cutting edge and bring these great tools that we're enjoying to the West to China while I'm also working on some of the lower hanging fruit in the Chinese, uh, <laughs> Chinese cornucopia of food. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the kind words, man. And we really, uh, we're really excited for you, brother, and everything that you're doing over there. Keep up the good work and, uh, you know, except maybe if you run into these women that wear red, white, and blue down there in Brazil. <laughs> okay. It's hard for me to get on here and just be all so pro-China. Because being pro-China, you have to be a little anti-USA because they're competing for so many of the same medals. Yeah. I hate, my mom gives me crap for it all the time. I always have to remind her, you know, hey, mom, it's not like I'm training the Chinese militia. We're still talking about, like, fun and games here, right? Yeah, <laughs> Totally. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you taking the time, and we will catch up real soon, brother. Yeah, and this is my pleasure. I've had so much fun. Let me know if you ever want to do it again. Definitely will. Definitely will. Thanks, pal. And a huge thanks to today's guest, Rhett Larson. Guys, absolutely awesome talk. Someone that's in the middle of 
Chinese athletic development, giving an inside you know, view of it, showing us, telling us, talking to us about how they do things with one of the most successful sports they have. It's really fantastic, and I can't thank Red enough for taking the time out to talk with us about it today. If you guys enjoyed the talk as much as I did, please share it through a social media outlet of your choice. If you have any questions, thoughts, if it helped you at all, if this got, if this got you guys thinking about anything, fire away. Leave it below here, whether it be on Facebook, YouTube, tweet it at us, shoot it to us on Instagram, whatever it may be. Guys, Rhett is open to discussing everything. He shares openly. He is an honest guy. He seriously is one of the best people that I've ever met when it comes to coaching. So if there's anything else you guys want to hear, please let us know. I'm definitely going to have this man back on. He is a wealth of knowledge, coaching at the highest level possible. And like I said, he's just a super dude. I can't thank Red enough, and I really do appreciate you guys being part of all this. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. We'll be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.